This is a Wool Observatory podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Star Stuff, a podcast by Lowell Observatory where we talk all things space and science and nature and history and art, as we'll get in today. We have a very special guest, Dr. Dan Durdra, and we're also joined by our content specialist, Maddie Mooney, and our historian, Kevin Schindler. Hello, everyone. Hello. Dr. Dan Durda is an astronomer at Southwest Research Institute, researching asteroids near Mercury. He appears regularly on the Science Channel series, How the Universe Works, and he was the 2015 recipient of the American Astronomical Society's Division for Planetary Sciences Carl Sagan Medal for Excellence, which is quite a mouthful. Uh, Dan. (laughs) Um, And I'm not done yet. In public communication in planetary science. So that's cool. Does that have an acronym? Yeah. Does there, is there, I mean, <laughs> American Astro- Astronomical Society Division for Planetary Sciences, Carl Sagan Medal for Excellence in Public Communication. Did they fit it on the award? I mean, yeah, there's, and there's an actual medal that goes along with it, which is rather, it, it is actually the Carl Sagan Medal. And there's a real honest gosh medal that I, um, I actually wore around my neck all the day it was presented to me. You should. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. You should still have it on. <laughs> Um, and I'm not done with your bio yet, which we joked about earlier. You have quite a list of accomplishments. Um, Dan is also an artist. He is a fellow and former member of the board of directors of the International Association of Astronomical Artists, the IAAA, um, which our marketing department up until our iHeart Pluto Festival was calling the uh, but apparently it's the IAAA, which is much easier to say. That might have just been you and me, honestly. Yeah, probably so. And we probably yeah. aren't going to change that. Uh, <laughs> His artwork has appeared in hundreds of magazine articles, books, and web news stories, and his animations have been featured in television documentaries on PBS and the Science Channel. And that's all the time we have for today, guys. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. (laughs) Um, But yeah, Dan, hello. Thank you. Thanks for coming on Star Stuff with us. Oh, hi, Cody. You bet. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. And you were one of our our Heart Pluto uh, World's Revealed Science Series guest speakers as well with Amanda Bosch. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I guess this was a repeat performance. I uh, was was on uh, uh, last time and had a great time on the program and was very, very happy to be back. It was especially good to be back in person this year. Yeah, it was great to meet you in person too. We've been doing so many virtual things. Um, And actually, I think it was Maddie and I who were doing the live stream for your event. And the whole time we were just texting each other, like this guy's so rad, (laughs) get get him on the podcast. So my first question is what got you initially interested in science and exploration? Oh, that's a great question. And I don't know that I can answer it because I don't have any memory of not being interested in science. It was something that I just, it just was infused in my life from being a little child. Um, I remember, um, well, I mean, I can, I can give you some things that I know definitely were influences. Uh, my parents were very encouraging. Uh, they never pressured me to do any one thing. It was whatever I wanted to do was was encouraged. Um, but one thing that they did provide in the house was um, there were a lot of books and, um, and uh, they uh, also, anytime I was wanting out of the, back in those days, the Sears Roebuck uh, 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 holiday 
uh, catalog book, I would always go and pick out all of the science sets. They had a chemistry set and a geology set and a biology set. These were these little science kits that allowed you to actually, you know, do experiments and dissect frogs and things like this. This is back in the good old days when they actually, you know, had like real things in the science kits. Yeah. And, um, but, but there were books in the house. They provided a, there was a, um, one of these subscription series of books from time life, um, which included things like the universe, the planets, the sea, uh, the, the earth, I think, uh, early man, uh, all, all kinds of great paleontology things, uh, stuff like that. Those books, I still have all of those books. Actually. Oh, amazing. Wow. They were a huge influence on me. And I, they just bring back a lot of really wonderful nostalgic memories looking back through them because I, I was a very visual learner, I think, especially early on. Still am, actually. Mm-hmm. But uh, for me, just combing back through those books, the uh, the imagery just still evokes all those wonderful childhood memories for me and emotions because it's, it was those imagery that, you know, those images, that imagery that got me interested in so many aspects of science. It wasn't just astronomy. I, I ended up in astronomy, but it was everything science, biology and botany and bugs and uh, uh, I, a lot of things. My choice for watching things on TV was always first and foremost the documentary things, National Geographic specials. Oh, um, yeah. The world of Jacques Cousteau. Cousteau yes. was a huge influence on me. I wanted to be, I knew I was going to be a marine biologist, right? Really? Uh, so that was, you know, up, up until 1980 when, uh, when Carl Sagan's Cosmos premiered on PBS. That's what kind of tipped the balance for me over toward astronomy. But um, yeah, it was, it was just a, you know, my, my parents weren't academics, but they encouraged everything that I wanted to do along those lines. So I just grew up naturally curious and exploratory from, from day one. So while, while the other kids had, uh, comic books, you were the, the fun nerd with the, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, I had, uh, National Geographic. Really, yeah. My, my parents and my sister had a heart, my mom and my sister really, you know, you should read, you know, they were, they were pushing me toward reading thing, you know, fiction things, fun things. Right. And I just, I just had no time for that. I wanted to read my science book things, and, you know, stuff like that. No, dad, I want to be a nerd. <laughs> Are you sure you want a chemistry set? You don't just want like a, like a car or something? Yeah. <laughs> So you, you said uh, the cosmos is what triggered your interest in astronomy. Um, were you Did you just instantly fall in love with astronomy because of that? Well, no. I mean, I was interested in astronomy even before. I had inherited uh, my cousin's hand-me-down refractor telescope. Um, I had uh, common, you know, everyday use of my dad's uh, binoculars from World War II. Um, they, they got turned to the sky all the time. Um, there was a the um, there was a, a a little series of little pocket book guides, uh, golden golden guides, book, yeah, golden guides, you know, and uh, of course among those were you know the the little astronomy couple of books that they had, and from that learning constellations and and so on. So yeah, no, I was like I said, I was all science all the time. It was every science, not just anyone in particular. But I think what happened with Cosmos in 1980. Um, you know, Carl and Anne did such a great job of writing and presenting that show. It was so poetic. It was so, uh, it was just beautiful. And it really, 
I, I think what it did for me is it wove together and showed me that everything I was interested in science I could accomplish by doing the kind of the kind of the kind of science that was, you know, the, the kind of astronomy that that Carl presented the, you know, his his innate um, you know uh, uh, draw toward extraterrestrial life and you know is there is there life out there are there planets around other stars uh, that is what grabbed me and it it told me that I could that all of the sciences I were, I was interested in were employed in thinking about those kinds of issues. And I was like, ah, that's what I want to do. Well, it's, it's great that you're, that you're, that inspiration that you really tipped you over the edge, you end up getting the Carl Sagan medal um, after the person who really, you know, inspired you. So that, that's kind of nice. Yeah, and that was, yeah, that was tearfully humbling and poetic for me too. It was, um, that was an amazing amazingly humbling thing to come full circle for me. It was so fun to have that happen. Did you, and, did you overlap with Carl Sagan on research or? Oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, I met Carl. Yeah. Carl was great. Uh, he, um, I handed him, uh, at one of our science meetings, our division for planetary sciences meetings, I, I handed him my extremely well thumbed and binding broke back broken copy of cosmos, you know, almost, in, mm-hmm. almost embarrassed uh, to ask him to find it. And he kind of he smiled. He's like, no, that's the way I like to see them. Oh, <laughs> that's amazing. You know, they say not to meet your heroes, but it sounds like you had a pretty good interaction. <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. That was, that was fantastic. He, he was, he was, a, he was, yeah, great, uh, great encouraging person. It was just, uh, it was, it was, it was an honor to meet him. It was so, it was so awesome to have that happen after that you know, such a huge influence early in my life. And I say early in my life, in 1980, I was in 10th grade, uh, just to, just for context. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, for understanding the, you know, you're, you're, you know, in the middle years of your high school career, right? And your counselors are kind of like, you know, I, well, I'll, I'll go and tell a whole bunch of story about that too. But, uh, but just shortcutting right to the counselor thing, you know, the meeting in 10th grade, you know, what do you, you know, what, what, you know, what, what kind of career path do you see in the future, you know? And, 10th grade, I was like, I'm going to get a PhD in astronomy. I'm going to be an astronomer. And they're like, I grew up in a very rural area of northern Michigan, right? So this was, you know, it, it, I, I, um, are you sure? Do you know what this means? You know, do, do you comprehend the meaning of getting a PhD kind of thing? I was like, yep, yeah, I know. That, that's, that's what I'm going to do. So that was rather funny. No, that was, uh, you know, I, I mentioned, of course, my parents first and foremost in encouraging me, but I had an absolutely fantastic set of teachers all through my, um, I mean, I, I'm thinking back, I'm thinking back even to first grade um, when uh, I was, I was, I was a dinosaur geek back then, of course, uh, as many youngsters are. About that age. And um, I was so much to the point that my teacher kind of kicked me out into the hallway. And it's like, look, there's nothing more I can do with you in class. Just (laughs) go out into the hallway with paint and the big poster paper thing and just go ahead and paint, paint paint a dinosaur mural or something because you're just, it's like everything else that's going on in class is just like boring you. So just go out there and paint. And and then they, uh, then they, in addition, it's like, well, okay, so, we're going to arrange for you to get this out of your system. So we're going to send you down to the sixth grade classroom and let you give a lecture to the sixth graders about dinosaurs. So I was going to say of, the teacher was probably like, you know what? Why don't you just teach the class at this point? Yeah. yeah. And that's basically what they did. So I gave wow. my first lecture in the first grade uh, to the sixth graders, which if you remember what it feels like when you're in the first grade, sixth graders are practically adults in your eyes. And yeah. Pretty, pretty funny experience. They're so, probably like, yeah. who is this kid? So, yeah. It goes, it goes back to that. It was, yeah. it was Pretty crazy. 
you're going to be flying around in the atmosphere soon, <laughs> right? Well, I'm hoping very soon. Yes, I'll actually pop out the top of it and uh, and get to <laughs> where it's where it's where the sky is black instead of blue. I'm really looking forward to that. Yes. Uh, so we at Southwest Research Institute, uh, led by Alan Stern, we have a rather um, rather um, focused uh, uh, suborbital research program focused on the use of the commercial reusable suborbital vehicles that initially were just developed and designed with a with an eye toward sort of adventure tourism space tourism uh, we rather very quickly you know realized and understood that the same vehicle the, the whole point of of making these vehicles that make space tourism tractable is that they make them it, it, it's it's cheap and frequent access to space that's the whole point you can't do this unless the access is is, is comparatively cheap and, and very frequent well those mm -hmm. same attributes make these vehicles extremely good tools for us as space scientists to get to our environment to do our research to take us to our laboratory and uh, so we've developed our program at Southwest to to do just that. And uh, we are looking forward to very soon flying with Virgin Galactic and hopefully hopefully soon Blue Origin as well. So cool. Do you think that um, that kind of like space tourism or just like, do you think that could ever replace commercial airlines? Well, I mean, I, I don't know about replace because they're different. They're they're for different purposes. I, I I believe and hope that we will get to a point where that sort of travel, suborbital travel and even orbital travel, will be as reachable for for people as commercial airline travel. I mean, it, it uh, airline travel opened up the world and opened up economies that we never even imagined. And I think that you know the ability to move or you know. Uh, up and up and above uh, in the same way will open up economies and ideas and experiences that will change people's lives in ways that we can't, I mean, we can try to extrapolate, but humans aren't very good at doing that. I mean, <laughs> I mean we, we always undershoot, right, in our extrapolations and our hopes and our dreams. It always ends up being better um, and, and, when, and, and more exciting than, than we usually dream. So I'm, I'm hoping that's actually going to be the case. I, I really applaud what's happening as we're beginning to see more people. I mean, I, I mean, I think, I mean, watching, you know, William Shatner and uh, Michael Stranahan fly on, on, you know, Blue Origin and seeing their, um, their reactions, their, their emotional reactions um, to what this is all about. And I think when more people uh, have that experience, um, you know, when, 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 when the artist next door and, you know, uh, your grandma gets, gets to do all this, it's, um, I, I think that's going to change the way people relate to each other and, and the world around them in ways that we can't yet quite, quite put our finger on. And I think it's going to be for the better. Grandma's in space. Grandma's in, I'm just thinking of my, my grandmother on a space plane. She would be. <laughs> absolutely not. I, I, I mean, it would be awesome if it became accessible, but I get nervous on regular airplanes, so I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how I would do. I think it would be worth it, though. Maybe it'll just be a big cultural shift, and it will be, you know, like driving a car to the next generations. Maybe. I might just have, a, have to pop a little Xanax first. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. I think we may get there. I mean, uh, um, I'll, I'll borrow the the sort of metaphor from from alan uh, alan stern who you know it's like what is suborbital commercial travel gonna 
going to be like in the future? What would you do? What would you do with your trip to space? Right. And he, he says, well, it's kind of like people back in like 1970, you know, what would you do with a computer in your house? And people, people wouldn't even know how to answer that question back then. Cause computer, first of all, computer would take up the house just about, and then nobody knew what computers did. I mean, what would you, I mean, okay. A few things computing out there, but I mean, what would you do with a computer in your house? I mean, you might use it to organize your recipes or something, right? I don't, you know, what would you, you know, nobody, nobody could imagine the internet and, and, and access to all of the information on the planet at your fingertips and how that, you know, and, and GPS navigation and, uh, yeah. and, and, and fertilizing crops by adjusting how the, you know, the, 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 the fertilizer is, is distributed based on where you are in your field because the satellites orbiting over you are, you know, beaming to the receiver in the, in the tractor down to, you know, three foot accuracy where you are in your field. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, 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 the world has been revolutionized by those sorts of technologies and, and that kind of access to that information. And nobody would have had a clue about that in 1970. And I think we're at the same stage with trying to imagine what people are going to do with this kind of routine access to space. Well, I'm sure, like Cody said, like there, there's going to be a cultural shift. I mean, at first, when people started flying on commercial airlines, like you would, it was like an event, you would dress up and like wealthy people did it first. And now it's kind of like you roll up in sweatpants and it's a thing that everyone does. <laughs> Okay, so there's another very interesting thing about you out of, you know, the billion other very interesting things, but we heard that you crashed two asteroids together. Yeah, what? Why, why would you do a thing oh, like yeah. that? There, there are various stories that run around that, that get expanded upon. It's like every time the story's told, it gets bigger and bigger. This was... That's so, what we do for a living. That's what we do for a living. The fish keeps getting bigger and bigger in the story. Um, yeah, so yeah, I kind of, kind of crashed together some bigger rocks than many people in the field do when they're doing their impact experiments. So you know, when you're interested in what happens when asteroids bash together out there in the main asteroid belt and in near-Earth space, um, a lot of our knowledge is based on extrapolations from laboratory experiments um, at small, at much smaller scales. There are amazing facilities like the Ames Vertical Gun Range um, out in Mountain View, California, at NASA Ames Research Center, where you can go and uh, shoot uh, small projectiles, BB-sized projectiles at uh, rocks and at um, uh, uh, trays of sand and regolith simulants and things like that at the kinds of speeds that are appropriate for the kinds of speeds that we have out there in the asteroid belt. Um, not the, 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 the mere, you know, tossing stones in a pond kind of thing. We're talking about, um, you know, speeds that are, are, are tens of thousands of miles per hour, hypersonic speeds, um, hypervelocity speeds. Um, uh, rocks colliding at faster than the speed of sound in the rock. But most of these experiments are done at pretty small scales. Um, I was trying to build uh, our ability to extrapolate from those smaller scale results to the larger scales that we like to model in the computer. Um, you want to provide more data to extrapolate from, so you'd like to try to have a better lever, a bigger lever arm to, to extrapolate from by doing these experiments at larger scale. And so I had um, uh, 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 the ability to shoot 
larger projectiles, golf ball size projectiles rather than BB size projectiles. We have a, a really nice facility at our um, uh, Southwest Research Institute's um, home base in San Antonio, Texas. We have a rather large gun facility there where I was able to pick um, not just, you know, fist size, grapefruit size rock targets to shoot at, but um, actual like meter size, you know, meter diameter spheres of granite um, and, and, and see how, the, how those, uh, how, how impacts onto those uh, compare. And at the end of the experiments, I still had, you know, the, the pretty big, you know, blocks of, of granite, these meter scale blocks of granite left over. Uh, and in fact, had two beautiful spheres of granite um, sitting there. And there was a, 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 another aspect of, of collisions in space that we like to understand is what happens after these big impacts when the debris from them reaccumulate at very low speeds because of the feeble gravity to make what we call rubble pile asteroids. Well, we can model this process in the computer, but again, how the little, you know, chunks of rock, meter scale chunks of rock are, are nestling back together with each other at, you know, the kind of speeds where you, you know, if you, you know, just kind of like drop a, a book on the floor. Um, uh, getting data on this, I think, uh, on how, you know, what we call the coefficient of restitution, how much energy is, is kind of given up every time the rocks nestle against each other again. Let's do the experiment. So I decided, well, let's take these meter-sized spheres of rock and hang them from construction cranes and let them clack together like a very, very large version of the little desk game thing that you often see on people's desks where they have the little clacking balls, they go back and forth. Let's do this though with meter scale blocks of granite hung from construction cranes. And uh, that's where the colliding two asteroids together sort of stories have, have come from. But uh, yeah. And I'm glad a, you clarified that they were being dropped because I was imagining them being shot out of cannons or something like that, <laughs> yeah. like pirate yeah. style. Yeah. Big, uh, <laughs> big, big projectiles. Well, you know, we, we humans have had a history of shooting uh, things like the mass and size of Volkswagens out of, out of big cannons and guns, mm-hmm. but they're usually done for purposes that are a little bit more... Uh, unhappy than uh, exploratory so less less scientific i would like to talk a little bit more about life outside of earth and this is where i would love to segue into uh some of your art and the research that goes along with that as well so from what I understand, your your art, which we have a few samples here, even on our shared document, your art is absolutely incredible. Um, what kind of research goes into creating these artistic scenarios of life on another planet and what that might look like for humans? And where do you draw your inspiration from? Oh, yeah, thanks. That's that's fun topic to talk about. I, that's, um, that's a creative part of me that came out i it 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 came out of of i guess two different directions one was the scientific curiosity just imagining in my head the romance of trying to imagine what very alien worlds might be like the 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 reality of the circuitous random paths that natural selection takes with an environment and you know and 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 biologic materials and I, I'm just absolutely fascinated with the 
the quirky unpredictability of of what alien life might might look like and how it adapts to to its environment so there's always that little you know romantic part of me i'm trying to imagine these sorts of things and then being confronted uh in 2009 december of 2009 sitting in the movie theater for the first time really being smacked in the face with uh what i what i considered that you know that the best photorealistic representations of what that sort of alien biota the beauty of an alien biota might look like when i saw the movie avatar Mm -hmm. um it, that it just it, it the 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 3d experience and the fidelity with which they were able to create this this environment that just drew you in um i mean it just it just knocked my socks off and i decided at that point that you know this was so it, it hit me from two different directions right it hit me from the science perspective of oh my gosh this is you know like i don't have to i don't have to make these little pictures in my head there's this beautiful world to explore i, I saw that movie in the theater IMAX 15 times because I just couldn't. Oh, wow. Um, oh, man. So it hit me from that perspective. But then it also, again, hit me from the creative, the artistic, the, the you know, I would love to learn how to do this, right? I want to mm-hmm. learn how to. I, I had been painting already up to that point, doing astronomical art since about 1995 uh, in the more, in the traditional way of, you know, uh, you know paintbrushes and acrylic and, illustration board and things like that um, and doing the best that my limited talents would allow me to do. But there was always this want to, to make it more real, to be more photo real, to make it feel more, um, more accurate and uh, mm-hmm. have the ability to do things that my limited talents wouldn't let me do. And, and when I saw Avatar, of course, I was like, well, this is the way to do it. It's all these digital techniques. And so in the spring of 2010, I just started collecting and buying all of the different software that I could from researching the kinds of things that they used, you know, the visual effects technologies that they used to make that movie. I'm going to learn this stuff and, um, and uh, built a really capable PC at the time to be able to do that and learning after effects and Moto and, you know, X frog and speed tree and, you know, world machine and all these kinds of computer software that allows you to render out these sorts of, you know, photo real environments and biologies and things like that. So yeah, I know during the iHeart Pluto Festival science talk that you did with Amanda Bosch, that was so fascinating to hear you and anyone who's listening to this, if you haven't seen that, uh, go back to Lowell Observatory's YouTube channel and watch this video. It's so neat. Uh, and you, you kind of went into detail about some of the, the programs that you use, which was super cool. Um, so I just wanted to say that, like, if anyone wants to know even more about the detail of that, it was such a fun conversation to listen mm-hmm. to. So go back and watch it. <laughs> super fascinating. Yeah, it's funny because it takes me, that also is a, is a, is a, was a potential branch point at about that same age where, you know, I diverted from marine biology to astronomy. At the same time, this is around 1980, um, we're just post Star Wars and uh, Empire Strikes Back is coming out. And I'm I'm becoming very interested in how, you know, how the visuals of that those movies came to be and learning things about visual effects and working with my playing with my my parents super eight millimeter movie camera where I could, you know, make, you know, stop frame animations and build you know, you know, uh, stop motion animation models. And I, you know, I could easily have tipped over and headed off to 
you know, work at Industrial Light and Magic and, you know, live my life in the visual effects community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so th- that's another aspect of why Avatar hit me so powerfully at the time. It was the confluence for me of, you know, the the, the, the scientific side of thinking about evolutionary biology and, you know, planetary environments and things like that, combined with the visual effects side of things, which I had a natural bent toward too, and the artistic side of visualizing these sorts of things. So that's, that's I think, why it was such a powerfully influential movie on, uh, on me at the time. Um, it just, it it's was, amazing to think like you've got, usually you've got someone, and I don't know if this still holds up in human biology, psychology, et cetera, but you've got let people who think with their left brain and people who think with their right brain. And I think one of the reasons that you're so fascinating is you've got both of those things going. You've got this like art and creativity and how you express your interest in science. And then you've got this legitimate hard science that you're accomplishing incredible things in. Yeah, it's a, um, it's a con that the whole right brain, left brain thing is a, uh, we in space art really kind of, we like to break down that barrier. We, we don't see it as an artificial distinction. Science and art are both extremely creative human endeavors. And, mm-hmm. and I, they, and they, and they, they both, they both feed so well from each other. And, um, so, I mean, I, I don't... like that because it makes science less intimidating for those who are like, no, I can't, you know, do trigonometry. I, you know. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, I think the push towards steam from STEM, right? It started out as science mm-hmm. and technology and engineering and mathematics. And we had the A in there for steam coming from the art side of things. And I think that's a beautiful merging. I think it's an appropriate one. It's um, it. Uh, I think there, there are many ways to think and ex- think about and explore the world. And uh, um Combine. I mean, I, I, I talked about it during the I Heart Pluto Festival talk. The, the whole, the, our, our as space artists, our uh, natural. I think we relate so well to the Hudson River School of Art, where you had, you know, the artists depicting the amazing vistas that were being discovered in the exploration of the American West. So at that at that time, and so it was this beautiful again, this beautiful merging of exploration. And, and the things that we were, you know, learning physically, technically out there during the exploration, but feeding that back to these romantic, beautiful visions of what those vistas were like to inspire people to explore more and vice versa, the exploration inspiring these beautiful works of art, and it, the, that, that, that beautiful cycle back and forth and interplay between the two is what the Hudson River School, I think was, you know, it, it's that part of the Hudson River School that uh, that appeals to us as space artists so well. That's why we, I think, so, so strongly self-identify with that. Then let's get back on the, this discussion of life, um, because, you know, it's something that we as humans, at one point or another, most of us have asked about life out there. And certainly Lowell Observatory, one of the reasons we're here, Percival Lowell asked that question and and looked for life on Mars, um, which we know today his vision of life there can't exist. Um, but it, but if there was life on Mars, uh, what would it look like? Yeah, exactly. And uh, I, I, I remember very early on in my academic career seeing some discussion and depictions of what life on a planet like Mars or Mars itself might be like if, if it were 
the the somewhat more romantic views of extraterrestrial life where you have these multi, you know, larger multicellular organisms and so on. So of course, then you start thinking about, well, it's a very thin atmosphere and you've got, you know, all this ultraviolet light impinging on the surface and, you know, life, some macroscopic life there, multicellular life there might have to have, you know, the, what, what sort of sunscreen protection would they, would they have to have? And I remember seeing depictions of these, you know, sh animals with, you know, parasol like things and so on to keep the sun off them and so on. It's, you know, it's kind of those, those fun romantic visions of, of, uh, of, 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 of multicellular life. Now we think of Mars, we know we have a lot more to work with um, from a factual perspective of what the environment on Mars is like and uh, what is there and, and, and what isn't there. And I think we, uh, we, we have a little bit more informed way of, of thinking about um, what might be there. And I, I, I mean, some people are perhaps a little turned off by the idea of thinking of, you know, merely, you know, the, the equivalent of blue green algae, the microscopic forms of, of life that, may have or may still be you know there on mars uh to me that's still so incredibly exciting because it's not the necessarily the the you know what you what you see in you know the macroscopic depiction of, of of some multicellular life it's just the very fact that some other biochemistry or at least a the the same biochemistry applied to a different environment independently um to, to show us what else is possible i think would you know, it's what that's some of the the root of some of the very biggest questions in all of science. I mean, just from a romantic and philosophical perspective, as you were alluding to, just the, the concept of, of, of life off of the earth at all is one of the deepest rooted, you know, mm -hmm. are we alone? You know, that, that's sort of that sense of belonging to something bigger than ourselves. And that's one of the ultimate, you know, questions and ultimate focuses uh, associated with that, that direction of thinking is, you know, are there forms of life out there someplace else in the universe? Is mm -hmm. there? Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh, uh-huh. Is there? Uh -huh. well, you know, uh -huh. so, you the, so you give the two different answers, right? As a scientist, I have to say, well, we don't know. There's no evidence yet, right? You have to base on that. As a human being, I'm like, oh, of course I want there to be. And, of course, I think there probably is. Everything we everything we know about how, how you know, how, how, how quickly life originated on our planet, everything we know about the origin of life, I mean, what little that is, but how much that is too, at the same time, how much we've learned, um, you know, the, the, the ease with which the biomechanical machinery, the molecular machinery of life, the ease with which that is, 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 is made and produced, um, out there in interplanetary and interstellar space. Um, I think that just, you know, just leads us down the path of a, of a populated universe. Right. I think it was um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, one of my favorite TV personalities in science. Um, you know, we have some disagreements about Pluto, but uh, mm -hmm. he he was giving a talk and said that with all of the endless possibilities in the universe, there has to be other life form. I mean, whether but you know where that's at and what it looks like and the chances of us communicating with it because he's like, you know, we can barely communicate with a chimp. Um, you know, how do you think we're going to communicate with an alien life form? But, right. um, yeah, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I always thought that I, was fascinating. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm exactly there too. I mean, you, 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 you preface with the standard boring answer from a standard scientist. Well, you know, there's no evidence we can't say, but you know, he, as a human being, it's like, yeah, of course I just gotta be, I mean, it's just, right. I, I can't picture, 
I can't picture a universe not just full over brimming with life. Well, I mean, we're not I that know. special. Well, I mean, well, we we're not, and we are simultaneously. Yeah, true that's, true. that's the beauty of it, right? That's the beauty of of. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's part of the messaging that, that for me, what grabbed me from Cosmos as well. It was so well written, the, the, the duality of the fact that we are nothing special and we're very special all at the same time. And it's, that's, 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 uh, that's why I love this, this area of thought. Thinking about extraterrestrial life and imagining what it would be like um, kind of leads to a question that I've just been dying to ask you. So when you imagine alien creatures, like uh, in one of your paintings, you can see like at first glance, they look like birds or cranes, but then you look a little closer and they look kind of odd. So mm-hmm. when you imagine these alien creatures, um, do you kind of apply like the way that things evolve and adapt on Earth to um life on these other planets or do you kind of go go crazy with it thinking about like what if they don't play by earth earth's physics and earth's rules it's uh i guess i'll I'll disappoint you by telling you that i really don't think about it that much when i'm doing my artwork Mm -hmm. i am really in a um i'm doing it for my own fun and when I'm doing my artwork, I'm, I'm just letting my imagination run wild and doing whatever feels kind of pleasing at the moment. And if it looks good in the image, I'll kind of go that direction. I think and that's a perfect answer. It, yeah, yeah, that's it's, awesome. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, so I have, to, I have to admit that I really don't think about it that much. The, the scientist in me, whenever I think about these things, I, of course, go to, you know, I, 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 I go to thinking about the stochastic the orderly yet stochastic nature of, of biological evolution and natural selection and you of course you know understand all the the irreproducibility of of specific body plans while simultaneously understanding the optimal engineering solutions of convergent evolution right so it's mm-hmm. you know fish are you know alien alien life forms that are moving around and 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 trying to traverse in a hydrodynamic viscous environment are just gonna need to be streamlined right if they're trying to move at any speed at all you have to be streamlined and that's just a that's just a that's just physics that's just engineering and but the specifics of what this alien biochemistry might come up with with a with a you know life forms that have got an entirely different tree of of experience and life and and uh, you know of of, of of body plans to work with we have you know we have our 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 five fingers on our hands because the 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 low bait fins of the you know lung fishy sort of things kind of moved us in that direction and we're we're confined now with future solutions to the physical environment around us with the you know the the machinery that that um you know life on earth is has has evolved with but you know other other life forms on other planets other gravities other 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 gases you know it's oh my gosh the the, the possibilities are endless but they're not unconstrained at the same time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's the that's that's what fascinates me 
And so, of course, the scientist in me thinks through those kinds of things. But while I'm doing my artwork, I'm just having fun and making things that are, are pretty and pleasing and relaxing to me. Good. That's awesome. That's what it should all be about. That's what it should be. I'm, I'm glad that that was your answer. <laughs> Another question I have for you, what do you think is the closest habitable planet near us? Like you hear talk about a Mars colony or mm-hmm. maybe even like moon colonies, things like that. But are there other possibilities? Europa. Yeah, Europa, I've heard, is also an option. Well, yeah, and I guess it depends what you mean by habitable. Um, if you mean from a you know origin of life, biological evolution perspective, you think, you know, we always have had these romantic hopes about Mars. Um because in the terrestrial planet region, it is the most Earth-like environment. It's not necessarily the most Earth-like planet in the sense of, you know, like, you know, their size and mass and other things like that. But in terms of, you know, surface environment, uh, even, you know, nearly resembling things we have on this planet, Mars is, of course, the place to go to. But then the beauty of it is we've learned to expand our horizons and the, the old concept of the habitable zone is probably encompassing the entire solar system. Um, you know, it used, to, it used to be the sort of, you know, the porridge can't be too hot or too cold, you know, kind of a thing. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's the Goldilocks sort of thing going on. It's just, just got to be just right, right? And it was a very confined, mm-hmm. constrained way of thinking about life as we know it and Earth-like planets and so on. And, of course, as we've, you know, explored our own planet, we've learned about extremophiles and life that is not dependent on the sun and environments in the deep ocean that are providing energies and chemicals that can drive biochemistries and biochemical pathways, metabolic pathways that uh, are not common to us here on the surface. It allows us to think about, you know, subsurface oceans. And that's another thing, you know, just the the, the planetary geology, the the, the exploration showing us that other environments are there that we never even conceived of. And that suddenly expands the habitable zone out to Pluto. Because, right. mm-hmm. you know, any place you've got a subsurface ocean, you know, you've got liquid water. Liquid water, by definition, is in a temperature regime that's similar to what we know, where the organic molecules that are, you know, the basis of the molecular machinery that, that drive our metabolisms can still be active. Well, sure. So that opens up the habitable zone to the entire solar system. Mm-hmm. And the past, um, like Venus. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I mean, you know, the, in the in, you, you go up to, you know, where the, where the clouds are uh, in the atmosphere of Venus, it coincidentally happens to end up being atmospheric temperatures and pressures very similar to what we have at the surface of the Earth. Mm-hmm. And so you think about life in the clouds of Venus as a potential possibility. It's, there's, there's yeah, nature and the universe are far more creative than we are. And we'll find a way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, life finds a way. But let's switch it around a little bit. We've been looking at, you know, possible life elsewhere. Let's talk a little bit about humans maybe inhabiting other planets. And is are things like terraforming um, a practical possibility or other, you know, what would it take for us to actually inhabit another planet more than just visiting there? Yeah, yeah, more than visiting. And I, I mean, I, I think it's an inevitability. Is you know, I think it's just that's what humans do. That is... I mean, I'm not every human. Obviously, there are some people who like to stay at home and be comfortable, and 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 I and that's great. Um, <laughs> you do you. <laughs> but, but you know, we as a species, what 
what you know what what got us here is the what's over the next hill and why does that stick over there look a little different than you know something and that, that's just i think it's just deep in the core of our dna to go explore um and uh, uh so i'm I, I think it's inevitable that we will end up um out there working with the asteroids and you know um, looking up at the moon some centuries into the future seeing you know city lights all over the place on the dark side and you know um it's uh i think i think we're gonna we're gonna i think it's inevitable and it's it's a, at our, to our advantage because sitting here on this one little fragile blue world we're very um we're very at risk uh, from uh from for for, for various reasons uh, whether that's something we do to ourselves or from something that's going to come from without as you know as as has to happen uh in the future as as comets and asteroids strike our planet so you know we, if we want to survive as a species if we want our species to have the chance to evolve to something else uh we need to get off the planet well we didn't get i mean we should probably convince you somehow to do just a part two episode um i mean you fly jets you're an underwater cave explorer what we didn't even get to touch on that uh you have an asteroid named after you which is really cool so many other things but um you know thank you for spending the time to go over you know the some of the highlights of your so much fun so much fun to chat with you um so much enjoyed my visit to lowell and looking forward to future ones Yes, hopefully next year for iHeart Pluto 2023. You bet. Uh, where can we uh, find you online if our audience has a question? Well, um, the standard Google searches come up with all kinds of crazy stuff. My personal <laughs> website, um, where I focus mostly on my on my artwork, actually. Uh, my personal site is at uh, uh, 3dimpact.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And um, if anyone has any questions for uh, Dan, you can tweet us at StarStuffPod or email us at info at lol.edu and we will get those over to him. Thank you again so much for joining us and for having such an incredible conversation. We've been looking forward to for quite some time. Oh, you bet. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. This podcast was brought to you by Lowell Observatory members and subscribers like you. 